Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to answer some questions about the Duluth model, and more specifically, its relationship or possible relationship to biblical counseling. Hey, before we do that, I want to remind you uh, of all the opportunities that are available to you over at chrismoles.org, chrismoles.org. What you'll find specifically is PeaceWorks University. You know, we've been talking about PeaceWorks University episode after episode as your best next step. If you'd like to learn uh, more of what you're learning in the PeaceWorks podcast, you would like something that's organized and structured, then this is the place for you. In fact, considering our topic today, I want to let you know for 2022, we're already planning for PeaceWorks University's deliverables in 2022, and one of them is taking the key elements of biblical counseling, those key elements that we all learn in the uh, track one first level training and applying them specifically to domestic abuse. So what does it look like in abuse cases to gather relevant data, to offer hope, to build involvement without colluding, to uh, um, uh, apply uh, practical biblical homework? We're going to be talking about those elements month after month walking through 2022. So, you know, get ahead of the curve. Be sure to go to chrismoles.org and check out PeaceWorks University. So our topic today is one um, that I'm not completely excited about. Uh, I should say this up front. It was not my intention to be a Duluth apologist. In fact, I hope that's not what happens today. Uh, Recently, there's been some criticism about the Duluth model, which is fine. That would not really uh, ruffle my feathers, as it were, or warrant a response from me. However, the most recent criticism included biblical counseling integration and um, uh, biblical counselors specifically, and so a lot of you have asked, could I please talk about it? So some of the questions, you know, included um, a concept of defending the model, which is not really my job, but some of the more important questions, the ones that really struck me were, okay, how do you use it? Can it be a benefit? Are there aspects of the model that we can use in biblical counseling effectively without being, um, um, without being affected in our worldview, without being uh, transformed, or without having to adopt the, the belief system. And so those are the things I want to try to address today. Briefly, quickly, I'll talk about some of the common criticisms. Uh, if you don't know, uh, I guess I should say this first. If you're not aware I've been involved in batterer intervention and domestic abuse work for the last 15 years. That entire time, in addition to being a biblical counselor, training churches, writing, speaking, traveling, and doing the PeaceWorks podcast, the entire time I have worked for a local criminal corrections organization. That's kind of been my part-time gig for 15 years. Once a week, every week, I begin in the morning and I go into the evening meeting with groups of folks who are criminally or civilly uh, sentenced 
right, either through a criminal order or through a civil protection order, sentenced to an education group, a class, that I've had the privilege of co-leading for 15 years. That particular class began as a quote-unquote Duluth model class. Batter intervention is a broad discipline. Uh, some of the major organizations include Duluth, uh, DAIP, Emerge, Amends, uh, and a ton of other hybrids. Uh, West Virginia, my state, would be one of those hybrid states where many of us were trained, got our initial certification or whatever, through a Duluth model training, creating a process of change, uh, but then added on to that with what's called the West Virginia model, which is a hybrid educational model that relies heavily on the individual facilitators and the community-coordinated response. So I'll try to unpack that a little bit more so you understand, but I wanted you to know up front that I've been trained in a variety of secular models to abuse and have attempted over the years to bring biblical truth and gospel-centered truth to that training. And so um, that's where I'm coming from. So some of the key criticisms that are out there, uh, whether it is leveled against biblical counselors or just in general, include efficacy. So one of the big questions is, does it work? And there's a lot of research out there. I mean, you could really spend a lot of time trying to prove or disprove the effectiveness of uh, batterer intervention. Now, what has happened on some of those, and I'll just give you a quick, quick recap. On some of those, especially meta-analysis, uh, a lot of the data does not include uh, Duluth-specific groups or doesn't specify what type of group you're leading. So it could be any attempt at um, holding men accountable. Uh, some of the ones I would recommend, um, there's a smaller study by Larry Bennett that kind of unpacks, although it's not a great scientific study, it's a really good read. And then there's some others by Ed Gondolf that are kind of the standard to seeing how the community-coordinated response, that aspect of uh, intervention, is kind of the secret sauce. I bring that up because, and you can hear this from some of the, some of the Duluth people themselves, they would say that groups and counties and states that incorporate the curriculum without a community-coordinated response. And a community-coordinated response is the idea that prosecutors, law enforcement, uh, victims advocates, batterer intervention group facilitators, and others meet regularly to discuss cases that involve the, the victim. And so from my end, as an intervention guy, I'm bringing the uh, abuser's progress, attendance, things like that to the table. Uh, groups that have a community-coordinated response have a much lower recidivism rate. And you can read about that from Ed Gondolf. But I get it. The efficacy, it's not an evidence-based program. So, And then how do you measure change? Holy cow. I mean, that's something that biblical counselors, I think we would struggle to have, you know, research on how we measure change. So, um, and there is a difference between safe and sanctified. There's a difference between uh, changing behavior and being transformed. How do you measure all of that? And certainly, I don't expect any secular model, Duluth, Emerge, or otherwise, to produce heart-level transformation. I don't expect it because it doesn't um, offer the gospel. So that would, be, that, that would be one big criticism. Another large criticism is that the, um, the most common element of Duluth, for instance, the power and control wheel, 
uh, dilutes, dilutes real abuse. And I think the problem with that viewpoint is it sees the pie, the pieces of the pie, the pieces of the wheel as uh, independent. And I think even what most of us who use the tool would say is they're not independent. The physical and sexual violence being on the rim of the wheel is important because it's that threat that, that gives power and authority to those other pieces. So I had one uh, pastor say to me one time, well, you would say if I leave my dirty socks on the floor, I'm abusive. And I was like, no, I would need more information. It could be, right? It depends on your history, depends on the relationship with your wife, and have you used physical violence or the threat of physical violence associated with laundry? Like, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Emotional abuse, isolation, minimization, denial, and blame, they carry weight, but that weight is significant because the threat of physical or sexual harm. And that's one of the things that I think complementarians could really get on board with because I could use a litany of behaviors against my wife that would elicit a response. So I could be threatening and call, you, you know, call her names and restrict finances in such a way that it would create a culture of fear, even terror in her. She could do the same to me, and it would build, at least in our relationship, annoyance. I might get angry, annoyed, frustrated, but I probably wouldn't lose agency. I'd probably still be free to come and go. Uh, I probably wouldn't be afraid for my safety, especially my sexual or physical safety, right? And I don't think I would feel threat, threatened. So men and women are different, and I think that's one of the things that um, – uh, we can embrace from the idea of the power and control will is that power is central to that. Now, how you interpret it, that comes from your worldview, right? Uh, the, the third critique, real quick, is that it involves uh, critical theory or socialization, and it does, and obviously uh, includes a lot of worldview development. I always found it funny, I used to say this in, in trainings, you know, I would go to a secular training, and one of the big things they would say is, Okay, now, you, we know that beliefs drive behavior, and we have to address these beliefs that men have, but, but don't give them new beliefs, right? The idea was they had to come up with these new beliefs themselves. But all the while, like all the while, a belief system is being promoted, and the idea of neutrality doesn't exist in education. So, yes, the facilitators have a great deal to say about whether you're going to be pushed toward a, a humanistic belief system, a political belief system, a secular belief system, a kind of hybrid faith system. Uh, and that's, that's one of the downsides, I would guess. Now, the interesting thing is, yes, the, the curriculum itself will talk about collective socialization and um, how culture affects men. And I don't have... I don't know. I don't have too big of a problem with that. Now, if, if everyone's an abuser, no one's an abuser. So I get that, right? I mean, all of us can't be abusive, but all of us are affected by society. I mean, we even believe that in biblical counseling. We talk about shaping influences. I mean, a lot of us learn that from the trips. Maybe one of our first introductions to biblical counseling was shepherding a child's heart. And shaping influences are important. And all of us are influenced to a degree or another by the culture. I do find it interesting that we want to say, hey, don't touch this secular model because it may influence you. And at the same time, 
And one of the ways it may influence you is by convincing you that you can be influenced. So, <laughs> right? So there's got to be some discernment. I mean, I even see that in my boys. I have two boys, and we offer correctives all the time. Because movies and video games and culture and friends left to their own devices will pull them into misogyny. I mean, I see it pretty regularly. And we have to kind of combat with biblical truth how we view women as people made in the image of God, how we view our partners, right? And uh, those are things that I think are just part and parcel of being a Christian, is that we're constantly bringing the gospel against a societal standard that's trying to draw us into something different. The irony is um, many of our secular friends, and I, I think DAIP would fall into this, right? So they see the culture drawing people into misogyny. So we're going to draw them into another um, another worldview, right, where we have one that's distinct. So, yes, biblical counselors, stick to the gospel, use the word, believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And then the, the last thing I guess I would say is that um, the power and control wheel is, um, a, I don't know, for me, it's just observable truth. It was, uh, it was developed with interviews with 200 women of domestic violence. So it's not intended to describe a, um, a victim of child abuse's experience because it wasn't created interviewing children who've experienced abuse. Um, it's not designed to articulate a man's experience of abuse. It was created uh, with conversations with 200 women of intimate partner violence. So it speaks pretty specifically to that. And, um, and yeah, so as a tool, I think it just provides observable data. It's like, here's what we learned. See, before that, I found out that, uh, I think 1984, I think the, the first conversations that developed the power and control will happen around 1984. And prior to that, most experts use the cycle of abuse. There's a honeymoon phase and um, tension building phase and explosion phase. The issue was that was created from outside observation, and it didn't really describe every victim's experience. Um, but what the wheels did is it gave voice to victims. Is it perfect? No. Is it exhaustive? No. But it's a pretty helpful first step when you're talking about observational truth. So, I mean, for me, I can say I use the wheel to help identify the ways in which individuals experience uh, that threat, fear, and coercion, kind of like a weight of abuse, but not necessarily um, assigning the worldview. So I hope that makes some sense. The, the question has come in quite a bit. It's like, okay, Chris, how would a biblical counselor use that information without necessarily promoting a humanistic or politically feministic or whatever worldview. How would you do it from a gospel-centered worldview? So what I'd like to do is just take a few moments on the podcast to read um, a passage from my book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, Gospel Solutions for Men Who Use Violence and Control in the Home, and just kind of walk through uh, those elements. It was no, should be no surprise that when I pulled out my chapter uh, or wrote my chapter called Behaving Badly, that I use these similar criteria. 
because they were observable and repeatable, and they were all held together by this threat of violence. So I'd like to read that to you, and, and maybe that will help give some clarity to how we might be able to use it biblically. So if you know anything about my process, when I talk about addressing beliefs, I'm really contrasting this heart of pride with the mind of Christ. Now that's something you won't find in any of the existing models, okay, from a secular standpoint. Obviously, uh, those models are not going to embrace this idea of embracing the mind of Christ, right? So that's my core, is I identify really what's happening in the power and control wheel. I run that through the filter of scripture. I run that through the lens of motives and intentions and impact, right? And then I push that data through the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter two, contrasting this heart of pride with the mind of Christ. Uh, and then we try to develop new godly motives based on things like second Corinthians five, nine, I make it my goal to please him, whether I'm in the body or away from it. And so we see that rather than desiring control, we want to desire the glory of God and conformity to Christ. So let me just unpack how I use the wheel in a compare and contrast. Uh, although I don't use the wheel itself, I put it in a model, the tree model. I talk about root and fruit, but you'll see the concepts as I read. Let's see. Uh, while there are many scriptural passages we could reference, here's a brief response to some of the categories we listed above. Moving from violence to gentleness. So when you consider the rim of the wheel, physical sexual violence, in our world, we know that that violates the image of God, the heart of God, and the will of God. So I say while we must encourage men who use violence to participate in a variety of God-honoring alternatives, one area we can highlight is gentleness. I've encountered many men who cringe at the thought of engaging in gentle responses to challenging circumstances. And yet, that encouragement is offered consistently as an alternative to violence. One, it's a matter of following Jesus. Consider Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Two, it's a result of the Spirit's work. Galatians five twenty two says, but the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Three, it's a requirement for leadership. So 1 Timothy 3, 3 says that leaders are not to be given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And then Titus 3 says that leaders are to slander no one, but be peaceable and considerate, always gentle towards everyone. So if power and control um, lead to physical violence or sexual violence or the threat of physical or sexual violence, I think that deviates significantly from God's word, and we should challenge it. Uh, from emotional abuse to encouragement, or ridicule, as I say in the book, to encouragement. Here's another thought. Words are powerful, and the venom of verbal abuse seeps into the spirit of its victim. Name-calling, belittling, verbal assaults, and the like are not consistent with the person of Christ, or people who he has called us to be. We are often admonished from Scripture to speak words of truth and life to those whom we communicate with. One, as a means of building others up. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30 says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. 
as an evidence, number two, as evidence of our holiness. Matthew 15 says, verse 18 through 20, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile anyone. And then third, as a means of practicing wisdom, walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5 and 6 says, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be always gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Another piece of the power and control wheel and one of the fruit I list in my book, minimization, denial, and blame. We should encourage people to move from minimizing, denying, and blaming others to truth. Truth and a willingness to speak honestly are key components within the Christian life. Deception and misleading behaviors are valuable tools to an abusive person who consistently deceives himself, lies to his spouse, and attempts to mislead everyone else. He is a master of manipulation that must stop and truth must come forth. First, as a means of accountability, Ephesians 4.15 says, instead, speaking the truth in love. As a means of sanctification, according to John 17.17, 17, that's the purpose of the word. Sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. As a means of obedience, Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of of one body. Next is the idea of using children. You know, they interviewed 200 women and found that children became weaponized in these cases of abuse. So I say it's time to move from using children to shepherding children. Children do not simply find themselves in the middle of abuse, but are forced into it by the abuser's choices. Using them to send messages or speaking ill of their parent, um, not only unnecessary, but it's detestable behavior. Too many parents have moved to valuing revenge or harming their spouse above caring for their own children. One, it's a means of loving one's children by loving their mom. Husbands, Ephesians 5.25 says, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. It models God-honoring behavior to your kids. Think about Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These commandments that I've given you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Three, Guides children as opposed to provoking them. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So as you see, as we move through the power and control wheel, if we just treat it as observable, this is what 200 victims of domestic abuse were experiencing. We have clear contrast in Scripture when those creep up, right, in our counseling relationships. When we press in and uncover these layers of abusive behavior that are all reinforced by the threat of physical and sexual violence, there's biblical responses we can offer. For instance, moving from male privilege to servant leadership. Male superiority in marriage has done a great deal of damage, not only to the women crushed beneath its weight, but also to the name of Christ, who taught us the power of servant leadership. First, as a matter of obedience, Matthew 20, 25 through 27, Jesus called them together and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentile lorded over them, right? It cannot be this way among you. Following the example of Christ in John 13, when he took on the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. And then as a reflection of Christ's love, Ephesians 5, 25 again, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
from economic abuse to stewardship. If you're using the finances as a means of coercion and control, again, reinforced by your own power and the threat of physical and sexual violence, does God's word have something to say about that? Certainly. Certainly. As evidence of your salvation, stewardship evidences your salvation. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What about as a means of acknowledging God's sovereignty? Think about Colossians 1.16. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then lastly, as a means of care and provision for his family. Think about Ephesians 5, 28 through 29. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. So this could go on and on and on. And when you think about things like coercion and threats and isolation and the other aspects that are typical, considerable aspects of domestic abuse, the Bible has plenty to say about it. So I guess for me, gang, I just thought it would be helpful. I know some of you were really concerned. You know, Chris, can you use material from a secular or humanistic point of view and offer it to folks from a gospel-centered perspective? So what I've tried to do in the brief moments here is just to show you that in my mind, the power and control wheel is just showing that physical and sexual violence driven by power, a desire to control, um, can be um, devastating to individuals. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. You know, most of the time that I've used um, or been involved in, I guess, the specific model has been in the corrections aspect of things. And now certainly most of the things on the power and control wheel aren't even illegal. But what I've found is I've dealt over the years with individuals who maybe were arrested for assault or battery or stalking or strangulation or very significant, severe forms of domestic violence, those that have a higher risk of lethality, criminal abuse. You know what you find? Many of the other pieces of the wheel, many of the other fruit that victims have experienced. And it's taught me, yes, anecdotally, but nonetheless effectively, that many times this dangerousness and lethality escalates over time. And so if we have the opportunity to interact with an individual who hasn't escalated to physical force, but perhaps is minimizing, perhaps is using their privilege as an advantage, perhaps they're coercing, threatening, maybe, just maybe, we can see a change before it reaches that escalatory peak, that level of lethality and violence. And certainly not offering them hope from some humanistic or secular standpoint, but from the gospel. So that's my take, gang. I hope that's been helpful. Certainly I don't want to fight with friends or um, disagree on everything. I think we can agree that the Bible is sufficient, that Jesus is in control, that the Holy Spirit is necessary for change, and that we are called to help people through the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. But sometimes systems are out there, observations are out there um, that might be able to help us. And rather than assuming that 
it's going to corrupt us, maybe we should promote discernment um, and give each other a little bit of hope and, and credit that maybe the gospel can speak to problems even as significant as this and that other tools might be helpful in discerning that. If you want to know a little bit more about my take on all of this, I read for you just a little bit from my book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, but I think that's probably a good place to begin. It's called The Heart of Domestic Abuse, Gospel Solutions for Men Who Use Control and Violence in the Home. And there you can see a little bit closer version of my model, uh, which we call the PeaceWorks process, that quite frankly, I have to give some credit to Ellen Pence and Michael Paymar and other folks who pioneered this work. We're not using the Duluth model with scriptures sprinkled in it, for sure. We're using a gospel-centered model, but we were helped tremendously by the observational inf information and the input provided from victims. I hope that's helpful. I challenge you to read the book, get to know our process, the PeaceWorks process, and continue to dialogue with us here at PeaceWorks, listening to the podcast, and consider chrismoles.org, uh, learning more about PeaceWorks University. And if you want to engage further in biblical counseling, if you are an outsider to biblical counseling, don't be discouraged by some of the topics and discussions that we have within our camp. Uh, sometimes we disagree, and that's okay. But there's room, there's a much broader spectrum of biblical counseling uh, than you may think. And so don't abandon the sufficiency of Scripture. Embrace the idea of everything we need for life and godliness being found in the knowledge of Him. All right. Love you guys. I appreciate everybody who listens to the PeaceWorks podcast. And until next time, God bless.